Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I'm really excited today to be joined by the visual artist, Will Day, and musical composer, Jonathan Bingham. Uh, Welcome, guys. Glad to be here, Devin. It's great to be here, Devin. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, can you just start by introducing yourself a little bit? Jonathan and I have worked together five or six, I think, musical compositions. Uh, I think one of the coolest aspects of your career and your trajectory, Jonathan, is that you didn't necessarily start out from the cradle as a musician, as a composer. You weren't a child prodigy, kind of like me. Like I, I started relatively late as a musician. Can you talk about your path to musical, to musical immersion? Sure. I see myself as having two beginnings in music. There was one when I was 16, which is still relatively late when you consider classical music starts. I was in a class in high school where we had to make music to silent films. And from that point on, I I knew that I wanted to be in music, though I wasn't exactly sure what career path it was going to be. Three years later, when I'm a sophomore in college at the time, that's when I found music composition. And at the time, I thought that composers living today were only going to be making a living doing film scores. I hadn't heard much of any orchestral music anywhere else. So film scores seemed like there was the way to go. Down the road, I found the concert hall and I found that chamber music groups and orchestras were still commissioning composers, which just intrigued my interest even more to find out that there was a world of contemporary classical music. So I I transferred schools and my teacher took me on from the, the start. I, I didn't know much. I, I could read eighth notes and 16th notes, but once you got to the dots, I was a bit lost. So that's pretty much where I was. What was the pivotal moment, if, if there is one, in your life when you decided, I have to compose? There was a, a time in, in high school where I we were assigned to score silent films in, in class. And I, I couldn't have told you what composition was at the time, but it, it was the first time that I had become transfixed with a, a certain activity. And during that time, I, I can't say that I knew I wanted to be a composer, but I, I knew that I wanted to make music. If you fast forward three years... I was in college and I was looking at a YouTube video and and John Williams' Across the Stars came up, which is one of the works that is used for one of the Star Wars films. And I I kept listening to it. I was in awe on how one, one person could compose for an entire orchestra. And that's the moment that I decided to change my major and transfer schools and start studying music. When it came to uh, 
composition, one reason I got into it that I allowed myself to get into it, I should say, was because I didn't think that anyone else was studying composition. So I figured that, you know, this won't be a very competitive field. I, I had never met a composer before. I had never met anyone who said that they wanted to be a composer or thought about being a composer. So I figured that if I was the only guy composing, then I would be very much in demand. <laughs> well, you very much are. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> finance on Wall Street before you became an artist. And then 9-11 happened. Yes. I mean, my journey, there's no straight lines here in this journey. And I was working for Bloomberg Financial Markets. And my wife worked for a company called Baseline, an equity research product. And she, her office was in Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. And... Um, it was a really tough moment when the second plane went directly into her conference room on 9-11 and she wasn't there. She was late and we were planning our whole wedding that morning and we were living right on in Chelsea at 17th Street and we saw the whole thing happen. And that was a turning point in not only my life, our lives, but our whole country, our whole world. And you know, that's when I just kind of really decided to be a creative spirit and say, there's nothing to lose. What am I working for? What am I living for? And I had this incredible jolt of energy to say, it's time to change my life and be creative. And that's when that call to action came into my spirit. And then, you know, I went back and got a master's in architecture at Pratt and I didn't look back. And I've used that type of kind of thinking on how I not only became an architect, but also an abstract painter, which I've been painting full time for almost 14 years now. To this day, does that event play a role in the creation of your art? It does. And I, I don't always think about it, but each year obviously it comes up and it, it's September and this month has been very challenging in many ways. So yes, it's not like I'm drawing death and negativity I'm remembering about the, you know, all the sadness, but also from the sadness comes light. And so I'm trying to, like any painter, use my voice to highlight these emotions that have been good and bad and tell a narrative that says, not only did I feel lucky to be alive still, but I also, I want to share what it is to kind of live through this trauma, but also um, learn from it and know that I'm never going to forget how this impacted not only our country, but our family and the world around us. Thank you for sharing that story, Will. And I'm so grateful that you and and Amy and, of course, now your whole family um, are here with us. Well, it's, it's, I do look, wake up every morning and I, and I am 
grateful. I mean, Amy could not have been here. She might have walked in earlier. So I have to remind myself that I am blessed to have her. A lot of people lost a lot of people, um, family members on that day. So, you know, that's important. Don't take anything for granted. And that's what I want to remind myself, of, especially when I paint in my studio every day. I think all of us as artists have some turning point, some yes. major shifting event in our life that that shocks our system, that tells us like, this is the only path you have. <laughs> I mean, how many of us can align that with, you know, such major American or world events slash tragedies? For me personally, I was going to be a doctor, you know, I wanted to play professional baseball for, you know, for, for a good amount of time. And, and it just, it, it, it happened. Like you get turned on and, and there were events throughout my life and childhood that kind of had an additive effect, but I would just be curious for both of you. Can, can you kind of talk about that discovery process of being a creator the rest of your life? I think these different marks and these events in each of our lives, they teach us something and you either get the call to action and you act on it or you just, you ignore it. And for me, the call to action kept coming back to say, you're a creative spirit, go do something with it. Now that doesn't mean go be an artist or go be a musician. It says, go figure it out. Because each one of us is just as creative as everybody else, but we all have our own little spin and our own God-given talent to be creative and innovative. For me, I didn't want to be a painter. I actually really wanted to be, you know, I wanted to work in advertising. I wanted, I loved the visualization of being part of a team and then telling stories and the narrative that way. But then painting really jumped out of me when I was working in Los Angeles as an architect. And the whole experience was about trying to visualize the big picture of solving problems and, and coming up with solutions. And I realized that I'm much better about being on my own and creating things on a surface, on a large surface. And so living in Los Angeles after 9-11 in New York, that's kind of what woke me up, being on the job site as an architect and said, hey, you know what? Your real profession is going to be a painter. And being in architecture was really the best foundation for me to wake up and finally pull all these pieces together to say, this is what God made me to be. Now go do it. Be a painter. And so... You know, all the pieces came together, but point of this message is really, you don't know 
what you're going to be until you really try and put yourself out there. And a lot of it is about overcoming fear and your insecurities that kind of act on these impulses that are so against the, the norms of society. The message here, no matter where you are in your own walk, listen to your heart, get out of your head and the ego and follow kind of this, this passion of your life purpose. You know, I can't say that my turning point was as measurable as 9-11, but I will admit that uh, your ending point was was right on target with mine. I had gone through several <laughs> different uh, interests in, in different careers. I, I wanted to be uh, at one point an engineer, then I wanted to get into law enforcement and forensic science. And, you know, it, it just kept going on and on. And I just had that interest. I, I couldn't stay still when it came to my, my passions, but there was something about music that totally transfixed me. When I was writing that music for silent films back in high school, it was the first activity that I had ever taken on where time just seemed to stop. Whatever was going on in life, that just became irrelevant. And I was in the zone. There was a class that I took writing this music and it was 45 minutes long. And I sat down one day to write my music. I honestly felt that five minutes went by and the bell rang. And I, I was like, what just happened? You know, I had never felt that before. Right then and there, I knew that music was going to be the career path. When I transferred, I was very ambitious and very intimidated by some of my counterparts. Those, I mean, some of the students at Howard, they were some musical geniuses. I mean, I, I had never met so, uh, so many talented musicians my age. So it was a bit daunting at first, but I kept to myself and just trying to pick up music bit by bit, listening to different things on, on YouTube and, and going to the Library of Congress, which I found to be an excellent resource for score study. I would pick out a score that I would want to study and just read along with it as the music played. I remember it, it was a, it was a sforzando in the cello and I had, I didn't know what it was. I, I just heard it. And I remember pulling out this Benjamin Britten score, making the trip just to look at that particular score, that particular part of the piece, just to see how it was notated. And I, I kept going on from there, just one thing at a time. That got me up to the point where I was looking at orchestral literature and then I was finally commissioned to write my first orchestral work, and that's that's how we all met. So that brings us to the topic of our show today, and, and that's really bringing artists and musicians together. And I feel in the times of COVID, where everything has kind of been flipped upside down, all of us are getting more creative. We're doing things that we kind of have maybe thought about before, but now we're actually able to implement them with more time to explore what our communities need. Can the two of you maybe speak about the moment, which I think was a pivotal moment for all three of us, when you guys got together? Because Will, you're a visual artist who has utilized music in many different forms for your whole career. Jonathan, we've spoken about your desire to really capture the essence of music for music's sake. I know you also score films, but a lot of your music to me is, is purely music. There's nothing else needed. You've been really oriented and geared towards just bringing the music out of your vision. Can you guys talk about this intersection that we've created? This was a dream come true for me. 
I was writing while he was painting and vice versa. So and then we we presented the work together. But it, it's been an amazing collaboration. I look at art as being pretty much equal to music. If you look back in time and, and you see what 20th century paintings look like, they look like 20th century music sounds. And you can say the same for any time period. Somehow it just seems to be running parallel with one another, giving respect to one another. And I'm hoping to see this through all through this century. It's been a lot of fun. I, I want to kind of review what we did, you know, for the audience, Jonathan. And what I was so moved by was being introduced to a, a genre of music and contemporary classical music that was so powerful historically and seeing how you're able to interpret that into today's terms. And the fact that we worked together, I thought was really unique because this was a time piece that was accumulated over you know numerous months. And the fact that we talked and collaborated based on our our ideas and our emotions and theories. And you would look at my art and we'd talk about my styles and you'd end up writing this incredible score that was um, so unique. It was thought about, but it was also magical. And seeing that happen, not just on one moment over a long period of time, and then get to hear it play live was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. So my epiphany, my wake up was, you know, when you and I met, you came to my studio and we just started talking about what does it feel like to have music being played in my studio? And what, how do I react to those sounds and pitches? And those are all part of kind of my paintings. Music is everywhere in every one of my paintings. They're all compositions. And I just can't get enough of trying to learn more about the history of all types of music and how it plays. And, and more importantly, how we all help each other and interact with these these trials and tribulations of color, sound, texture, composition, size, scale, it's all right there. So I just think, you know, having us all collaborate on this ethereal idea of opening up the box of innovation, creativity, really enabled us to kind of tackle something that was one of a kind and timeless. lot of really well-known historical examples of music interacting with art. Jonathan, you talk about the Impressionistic era a lot. Will, you, you mentioned Kandinsky with regards to Schoenberg and other second yeah. Viennese school composers. Another famous example is uh, Modest Mussorgsky and the pictures at an exhibition when his very good friend, the set designer and architect and painter, Victor Hartmann, passed away. There was an exhibition of his works, and Mussorgsky essentially wanted to memorialize him through this piano piece. So he walked through this exhibition and created little character pieces for every single piece that, that Hartmann left behind, which we probably would not know anything about today had it not been for that musical incarnation. 
So could you guys talk about your interactions going back and forth? What are the logistics of it? For example, if there's a composer looking for a painter or vice versa, how do we work this out? Like what really worked well about this collaboration that you guys did and what would you want to do differently? What I would be looking for in a potential artist, this is before I met Will or before I even met Devin. I always saw it going hand in hand with the expressionist movement in 20th century art. Uh, as well as impressionists as well. I always saw more of the abstract and I didn't think that anyone was going to make a portrait of a person to my music. So when I saw Will's art, I felt lucky. I was like, this is perfect. Because what my music was really trying to do was one, bring forth a, a certain structure, but I always knew that it may not be interpreted that way. You know, you may not be able to hear it and, and say, oh, this is clearly a sonata form or this is ternary form or whatever I was doing at the time. The emotional response to it would be that this has its own texture. And that's what Will's art had as well. His paintings are abstract, but each one has its own identity. I could tell that he was very careful with certain colors that he was using to make this a, a certain feeling. So to say, you know, it, it had its own voice. And that was that's to say about each individual painting of his. I would go straight to his Instagram and just start just scrolling away and being able to identify my own emotional response to each piece of his. And I said, you know what, this is exactly what I've been wanting my music to do. So I, I thought it was a perfect fit. I was lucky because you did a lot of the work. I mean, the, the truth is you were responding to this joyful period in my life that I was able to create some new work and listen to your style and respond to certain things based on our conversation. I think what you helped me do was to sort of say, relax, think out of the box, listen, tune yourself into something that I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with, but I obviously, music is in all my, my art. Wazili Kandinsky, the Russian abstract painter, was all about music, color, and sound. And that, as an early age, always identified when I used to walk into the Guggenheim Museum in New York, and there were his paintings. And I'd be like, wow, why do I love this? It's just the painting sang to me. And there was no, there wasn't music there, but his, you know, he created these compositions that had chords and, and different symbols and shapes. And I was like, that is magical. And I want to be able to convey that in my art. So, you know, it's kind of like an ecstasy of just looking at something and letting your mind explore and blow up and say, there's no concerns. I'm not worried about anything. But when I look at that painting or when I hear this score, you feel good and it's uplifting. Every day I seek to bring this type of inspiration and joy into my art. And that's music. And without music, I feel like I am just blah. And when you and I met, I thought that was really one of a, a nice changing point in my career to be able to identify with some really professional musicians, composers, to really talk to you about how what we do inspires and creates amazing conversations and emotions for people. I love that. So hopefully we continue to do that. Can you talk about the creative raw materials that we're using? Because just looking at, at your paintings, Will, I see musical compositions. It speaks to me that way. The same with Jonathan. That actually, to me, that creates, like your music, it creates pictures. It creates, I think, more 
accurately a story in my head, some kind of drama that the greatest pieces of music can credit themselves with. Like that's like, why was Beethoven's Fifth Symphony such a popular, even to this day, when an orchestra plays it, first of all, it's, it's almost impossible to play it at the metronome marking that Beethoven intended. And when orchestras do play it that way, it sounds incredibly provocative. It sounds like something that you just want to tear your hair out or something. You know, just listening to this man working through his demons in a way. And that's, that's the drama behind that piece of music. And I think, Jonathan and Will, you, you incorporate both of those in a way that pushes the listener out of bounds. So I guess, can you talk about the raw materials if you had to put music and art together, if they were not separate entities? What are those raw materials? Like, what are those atoms or motives? Or they used to talk about when Pavarotti sang, you could see the air molecules coming out of his mouth. It was such so thick, it rattled your skull. Can you maybe talk about those raw materials that you guys use? I love your idea and what you said about the drama. I mean, the art, remember, each piece, each score, each, you know, song does have a story. It's a narrative. And sometimes it's more intense because that's how we feel. Sometimes it's very romantic. Sometimes it's very peaceful. Sometimes it's, you know, in the opera world, life and death and suffering and overcoming, you know, and it's just the intensity. When I paint, I try to bring that intensity and that emotion to the surface. A raw canvas could be wood panels. It could be murals. And I always ask the universe and saying, I'm showing up today. I want to create something that's unique and different. And I don't want to be doing the same thing every day. And even though, like you mentioned Pavarotti, he sang these very similar songs or, you know, was in so many different operas. The way he approached it each day, he was scared to death getting on stage, they said, you know, so he emotionally showed up and was ready for something new and different. He was able to show his intensity because he always put himself out there. And I hope we all do that. But, you know, we say, I can't compare myself to even these other artists because some of them in, you know, are painters. They've reached high success. Others haven't. But the most important thing we all have in common is to show up, be authentic, and be vulnerable. Pavarotti was vulnerable every single performance. I mean, I can't imagine showing up every night on stage. In painting, I get to hide. I have to get be in my studio. But also, for me to show up, I really have to be vulnerable. This is me alone in the studio. And, you know, the materials and the tactile feel, you have to continue to be in a place that you want to learn and you want to push yourself. And it's not easy. It's intensity. I, I just love the art and musical scores that have so much life to them. And it's the life that really highlights the good and the bad, the evil, the love, the joy, overcoming, the challenges, the intensity of life. That's why I love opera so much. It is like in your face. And that's what I try to demonstrate with sometimes in my paintings without being political, without having words and having the colors and shapes sort of like open your heart to this incredible new vision of what I'm trying to say. And what was it about Pavarotti that you think put that in people's face all the more I so just, than your average singer? Great question. I think he was able to constantly show up and knowing that his vivacious personality connected to all types of walks of life. But he also knew that he had to continue to improve and he could never settle. And he always was trying to be his best. 
but he knew each performance was going to be different. And so he was able to recognize that there'll be faults. There'll be times where he doesn't hit those notes, but he was not afraid to fail, but continue to improve. And I think most musicians or artists or people on stage, it's hard to do that. It's really difficult to take criticism and constantly change how you really want to define what you think people want you to be. He was able to transcend all those critics and say, you know what? There's more to opera than just this voice. That's what made him so different. Looking at other pieces of art outside of music has been a huge influence. So this could be a painting, this could be a film, this could even be a building in architecture. And what I'm really looking for nowadays is the structure and the form of it. For example, let's just take the One World Trade Center that's standing in New York right now. I see structure that could be a painting. I see structure that can be related to music with that. Because obviously this is a very simple example, but it, it stands up, it goes vertical, and every one of its four sides are glass. Now, not every skyscraper is like that. You know, there are some that have more detail and that can be added into music and into painting. So nowadays I'm looking for form. I, I read a book not too long ago, The Lessons of History by Will Durant. That became the basis of a piece of music that I wrote. In it, he was talking about the formal structure of history, how things repeat, not so often, but more so in outline. I thought, well, music in many ways does the same thing. We have repeating motifs every so often in, in a piece and you know, we, we get to know it, or maybe it's a repeating theme that we get to know, whether it's in a different key or a different octave. In some fashion, it's a different experience when you hear it. And I thought that music could do the same way. So in this particular piece, it's a string quartet. It's a vocal string quartet. The players sing as well. We hear these themes just repeat over and over and over again. But just like history, they're not going to repeat in the same exact way. There's always going to be something different. So this is just the answer for today because that's yeah. the most recent thing that I've completed using this strategy. But in the future, I, I totally plan on reading another book and getting influenced by it. So now I'm, I'm looking at literature. I'm returning to paintings. I'm looking at architecture. It, it just keeps going. So this, this new decade of music for me is going to be something different.
music, we talk about what came first, melody or rhythm. And I'm curious what you guys think about what came first, art or music? <laughs> I, I mean, I wish I had the perfect answer. I think it's all tied together. I think music is art. Art is music. There, There's harmony. There's, there's sound. It's evolved. So initially, maybe cave paintings, you know, way back in the day was the ultimate way to communicate with banging sticks on the rocks and sounds. I mean, it all was one. And then we kind of categorized this. I think it all came at the same time, but the popularity of what it is defined through different civilizations is what really kind of made this, what made music and art its place in the world. I look at it as one, and I think it's really important that we see creativity as this amazing spark that we all have. And whatever you decide to be creative in, do it. And the point is that, you know, there's no straight line in life. There's no one thing that says this is more creative than the other. But what's important is that each one of us dig in and find what that creativity is in times of chaos. And I think that is the, that's harmony when we combine it all together and not separate or segregate it. It is hard to pinpoint which one came first, but yeah. I I can't help but think that they were here before anyone ever put a name on them. And that's to say that people were probably just making art before it was an actual craft. People were probably making music before it was a craft. I mean, that's just my assumption, but you know, at some point and in some cultures, this is just something that everybody does. There are countries in Africa today where everybody sings. If somebody asks you to sing, you don't say, oh, I'm not a singer because everyone's a singer there. And it, it's mm -hmm. not a thing of you being a trained singer. You didn't go to school and, and study this. It's just more so this is just part of culture. Music is a part of the culture. And it's it's the same thing with, with painting. You know, there there are people who are trained painters and professional painters, but there are also people who just paint because this is how they are expressing themselves. This is their exercise for relieving themselves of the of the day or what have you. So I mean, music and, and art, we we love to develop these crafts, but there are some people, they don't take it as seriously. They just take it as something that is an activity just for enjoyment, which is really, if you think about it, the most free music that you can make or the most free art that you can make. I think, Jonathan, you nailed it. Each culture has identified certain types of creativity in society, and every single person is a creative spirit. We're all different levels on how we, we show that to the universe. So, you know, would there be artists? Of course there would be. There are different levels of them. Some are more talented. Some express themselves in many different ways. So one good example is, you know, I'm sure that there's techniques that Will can talk about in painting and, you know, the whole history that I may not be aware of. I can probably do the same thing with music. But here's the thing. When I write a piece and I'm drawing out a staff or a treble clef and I'm putting two sharps in the key signature, that D and F sharp and, and all that, that's not music. That's just a language that I use to interpret myself. I can use that to translate whatever I need to musicians. 
music itself, it's just the organized sound, as I like to put it. And that's it. You know, we don't add on to that definition because if you add on to the definition, it begins to limit it. But, you know, everything that I've learned in school, it wasn't necessarily music. It was just how to communicate with music. But the, the actual music itself, it's whatever I want it to be. You bring up a great point about what is art in the first place, because what you just said, Jonathan, that music is not the black notes on the white paper. It's not even probably what the composer is hearing in their head. It's some group, whether it be singers or musicians or somebody banging on a can creating sound. That's the music. And it doesn't even exist on a recorded medium because that's all zeros and ones, right? That's all bits. Like that's not, it's only the act of experiencing it, of being in the center of a drum circle or feeling the vibrations of a great tenor singing La Boheme, Mm. as opposed to the art where, and maybe Will, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the art is created and it's owned by somebody. Like, yes, of course, you're going to have like the Prince Razumovsky or Lignowski commissioning pieces and he's got his name at the top of the Beethoven string quartet or whatever. But for the art, it's like that is there and you're selling it and that painting, once you sell it, that is, it's, it exists in that person's living room. And it may not even be in your head anymore. I mean, many composers can, yes. they could probably play their music out, you know, on the piano. But that's, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious about that differential. I think that's a really good point. I, you know, I have thought about that because, you know, I go through these different periods, just like probably you, Jonathan, you know, you said you've, you've merged and changed over time. And I think most artists have. Sometimes when I see a painting in a living room that I did about five, eight years ago, I commission, if it was commissioned or regular, I actually don't even recognize that person. You know, I was like, wow, that was Will? What was I doing? I mean, but artists will, that's part of the joy. That's part of the adventure. That's part of the journey. And if you are painting the same blue period, that's not, that's going to get really tiring and it's going to get really uninspiring. So, I think you, you nailed it. It is a very important part of the process of being creative and keep reinventing your narrative and your story and your voice. I am, you know, I'm struggling right now. I'm trying to go back in time and create a painting um, based on this theme that really was will 10 years ago, nine years ago. That's okay. But I have to then figure out how to interpret what that style and technique was into today's voice with a very similar feel of what the final product's going to be like. And that's hard. It's very hard for me to go back to evolve, but also keep it somewhat unique and different, but in a way that still speaks to the client or the, or the people that I want this message to to this inspiration for. There's an interview where Miles Davis is asked, would you still make music if nobody could hear it? And he said, (laughs) sure. Yeah, like, of course I would. And he asked why. And he said, because I love music. It's true for me. I thought I would get to the point. And many people get to the point where um, 
they only write music if they're paid for it, you know, and <laughs> God bless them. That's mm-hmm. great for them. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are some people, they, they won't get paid for it. Or in times like this, nobody's getting paid to write music, or at least not as many people. So mm-hmm. in, in that scenario, if you're an artist, you know, and you truly believe that, then there's nothing that anyone can say that's going to stop you. And if you are not an artist, then there's nothing that anyone can say that's going to help you to become an artist. It doesn't matter really the circumstances of the world, if there's money being thrown at you or if there's a a pandemic kind of halting everything. There are just people who are going to make art because that's just, it's just what they do. And this is how they respond to what is going on in the world. This is how they respond when when no one else is listening to them. They they have a certain craft. It doesn't matter if they've been trained in it or not. It's it's more so they make their own parameters if need be and they create it and that becomes their voice. I really do believe that if you can find whatever it is in, in your community that is 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 crying out for help, I, I think it's important to be able to try and incorporate that into your your art. I think that's going to be the art that really stands out from this time period. I mean, 2020 is is the year of influence for me. There is so much going on and so much that you can pull from. And, and keep in mind, a lot in 2020, it's not just happening for the first time. When you think of the reawakening of social injustice in our community, that's something that we've seen before in this country. When you think of the pandemic going on right now, that's something that we've seen before. So it doesn't have to necessarily be about what's going on today. But if you can also try to connect it to see what's been going on throughout history up until today, not many people know that. I I mean, a lot of people who just don't know much about their history. So it's important for, for artists to take a hold of that and to be able to present it not only for today, but also for whatever past decade or past century that you've been living in. Because people, they, they need to know. the role of music and art always to bring people together or is it to provoke change? Is it to be apolitical or is it to take a stance that helps to inform people, as you said? I think so. I mean, in in many ways, 
I like to think that all art is political because it is coming from an individual who has their own beliefs. It's not going to match up with the rest of the communities, but whatever that art does come out to be, even if it's non-programmatic, I still like to think that there was something in there that the artist was thinking about. Even if you say this is just absolute music, in, in many cases I have. But if I were to go back and think about the four months that it took me to write this piece, I have to be able to pinpoint something that happened during that four months or something prior to that four months that put me on the track that I went on. I mean, at the time, you know, when I first got into music and started composing, your resources are, are key signatures. You write in a major key or you write in a minor key. You, you don't know how to get out of that. At least I didn't at the time. And I found myself writing in minor keys. I don't think I wrote a, a piece in a major key ever. I might write music these days that sounds like a major key, but it's not, it doesn't function as a key signature, at least not now. But back then, all of my music was in a minor key. And then I got into to new techniques, but I, I can't help but think that there had to be something that put me on that path. I met a film director not too long ago, and he was interested in my music. And he he noticed and brought out that he said, Jonathan, your music has a, a bit of melancholy, a little melancholic theme. And I, li I listened to this piece, I listened to this piece, and, and so on. And although they sound different, there's this very lush, rich, dark, melancholic thread that I can see running through this music. I had picked that up, to be honest. I, I did, but I, I wasn't expecting anyone else to. And I was, I was glad that he said that, but I, to bring it back to the, to the question, it's that there is something that's been going on, whether it's in my life or, or those in my life that directly affect my music. Artists have a role to kind of think beyond the now and think to the future. And that's what I try to do because this too shall pass, as they say. And what do we do and how do we keep inspiring the next generation? Building on the positive and the negative from all of our history. And I think artists really have that incredible ability to generate these emotions that are timeless and allow people to dream and think and remember what was good and bad of the past. So their roles are very important. Right now, there's a lot of controversy going on, and that needs to be addressed. And But there also needs to be, there is always a light in darkness. And I think the artists need to also represent that light in darkness to really bring hope to the next generation. And I think we all have that incredible ability to, to inspire and use art as a way to do that. So I think it's very important on all levels. Well, if there were ever uh, two creative people who I could be speaking with who are helping to bring light to the darkness, it would be the two of you <laughs> and Jonathan Bingham and Will Day. Thank you so much for joining us on One Symphony today. Thanks for all you're doing for your community and for your art form and for the bridging between the two. 
been a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate the time. And Jonathan, great to connect with you and Devin. Thanks for all those. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me, Devin. Thank you to all the incredible performers who made this episode possible, including the Jack Quartet, the NYU Contemporary Ensemble, conductor Jonathan Haas, violinist Charles Weatherby, the Boulder Symphony, tenor Luciano Pavarotti, conductor and composer John Williams, the London Symphony Orchestra, conductor Richard Bonning, and the English Chamber Orchestra. Also, a special shout out to the DECA label. Musical excerpts were taken from Jonathan Bingham's Music for Four Instruments, his String Quartet No. 1, his Untitled, his Violin Concerto, and two film scores including I'm Not Special and I Feel Better, and Quaternity. Musical excerpts today also included John Williams' Across the Stars from Star Wars Attack of the Clones, and Gaetano Donizetti's Una Fortiva Lagrima from L'Elysir d'Amore. Thank you for joining us. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org. For info on composer Jonathan Bingham, you can find him online at jonathanbingham.com. You can find contemporary fine artist Will Day online at willdayart.com. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music